just whatever you teach me, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on. So during the time that, that Mead and I and, uh, were away and stuff, just this message kept getting my attention. So I want to talk to you about making time for God alone. It is not something that is so hyper, so intense, so magical, so mystical. It's quite practical. But it is, it is vital. And it is something that, that if, if you're like me and you look at your prayer life and go, man, it sure could be better. I sure wish that, that I spent my time wisely when I'm with God. <clears throat> Not like a client in a business, you know, but like you and God. Uh, you, you spend time, uh, if you, 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 if, if you're married, you need to spend time with your mate. If you have children, you gotta spend time with them. And not just sitting there on your phone while they're playing, but time with them. And when you spend time with God, it's got to be special and it's gotta be important to you. And I wanna show you how it can be. First of all, uh, this is a great truth, alright? And you've probably heard it and it applies to a lot of different things, but this truth, you need to get into your mind and go, all right, I'm going to understand this. Now, this is part one. I, it's, it's really big, so I'll do it across two Sunday nights. But the great truth you need to learn from is that you are what you are when you're alone. You are what you are when you are alone. What does that mean? It means what you're like and how you think and how you live when you're alone is who you really are. What you do when no one's watching you is what you are. What you do when there's no one to impress, that's who you really are. When you can do what you truly want to do because no one's watching over your shoulder, what would you do? Doing right things even though no one may ever find out that you did them is the measure of integrity and character. Let me say that again. Doing right things, even though no one may ever find out that you did them, even though no one is watching over your shoulder and making sure you did them, doing right things when nobody else knows is the measure of character and integrity. Are you with me now? Now, what you are like when you're alone is probably the worst we can be. That's why the Bible says it's not good for a man to be alone. So, I want to talk to you about how to get alone with God so that you have character, so that you can be changed. I want to teach you about doing something even though no one else can know about it. I want to teach you about having a time with God that Jesus called getting into your closet, getting into some place that nobody can find you. They don't know that you're praying. They don't know that you're, you're spending time with God. It is something that you have made time for and you're alone, and you're, you're out of sight, and nobody knows, but you and God are spending time with together. See, it's one thing where the Pharisees would walk around, and they would stop at a corner, and then they would raise their hand, and they begin to pray, and they had their reward, didn't they? One thing where people can stand up, and I've known of people who, if I called upon somebody, I said, would you pray? Oh, they could stand up, and they become eloquent. You wonder, did these, they may be able to say some wonderful words, but their time in public praying is almost nothing compared to the time that they should be spending alone. Make time for God alone. 
Do you know you weren't meant to be alone? Let's just have a, 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 a simple truth here. You were not meant to live constantly alone. I know a lot of perpetual loners. People who could live out most of their lives without anyone else around and it wouldn't bother them in the slightest. I know some preachers who would love to be away from people. <laughs> they just they just don't want to be around people. They want to be alone. It's a strange thing. God calls all kinds. But we were designed to be a part of a family. We were designed to have community, to be a part of a church. It's a blessing to not be alone when you're hurt. What does the Bible say in Ecclesiastes? It says, when one falls, it's nice to have another that picks them up. When you're cold, it's nice to have somebody else beside you. So even no one, even though no one admits it, most people hate to be alone. How many of you mothers have been, let me use the words, left alone, abandoned is the real word for it, when it came time to start in the dishes? You hate it, don't you? You know, where did everybody go? <clears throat> well, we really hate to be alone. It's not pleasant and it's not right. So usually we surround ourselves with constant activity. What does that mean? Well, we play music in the background. We have we have RTE one play and then there are talk shows and they're discussing different events. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just proves that we don't like to to think that we're alone. Sometimes we surround ourselves with our children. That's a great thing. It's not wrong at all. Sometimes we, we just hang around with our co-workers. Unfortunately, today, most of the time that people spend is in front of a TV or social medias. And all they are is they're surrounding themselves with all this activity. It's virtual. It's not real. Because they hate to be alone. Now, alone time is different than loneliness. Do you understand the difference? When you're lonely, that's very destructive. It actually is unhealthy to live a life of loneliness. This message is not attempt. This this message is not an attempt to just get you alone. It is rather an effort to get you to make time to be alone with God. Listen, as Jesus throughout Scripture calls us to make time just with Him. I'm going to surprise you if you go to Song of Solomon. Go first to the Song of Solomon, just before Psalms. In chapter 2, Song of Solomon, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then comes Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And Song of Solomon is Solomon and his new bride and their relationship, but it is put in the Bible. Easily, it is a great example of the interactions and relationship and developing um, the relationship between a husband and wife, but doctrinally, it is Christ and His church and the love that He has for her and the love that she has for Him and the struggles they have with understanding each other, which is normal. But in Song of Solomon chapter 2, listen to Solomon as Christ speak to His bride. Solomon chapter 2 verse 10, My beloved spake, and this is the bride speaking, My beloved spake to me, and guess what He said unto me? Rise up, my love, my fair one, and what? What does he want? Oh, I'm sure there were clothes to, uh, to, to iron and wash. I'm sure there were dishes to, to wash. I'm sure there was um, uh, uh, rooms to clean. And in comes the husband and he says, Hey, come away with me. Amen. Look at uh, verse 13. He says it again. 
The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. It's harvest time. It's, it's springtime. And the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. He's asking, come away with me. Let's spend some time together. That's a good thing in a marriage, isn't it? You don't have to go on holiday. You can go for a cup of coffee. You can just go for a walk. It, it's just making time. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Matthew 4, 19, the Bible says this. We'll look at verse 18. Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 4, 18. Saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway, they straightway left their nets and followed them. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now, that's, that, that may not be what you think it is, but it is in all reality, he's saying, spend time with me. You see, if you're gonna, if you're gonna watch me and learn from me and, and, and follow me, you're gonna have to spend time with me. And I'm afraid a lot of Christians spend very little time with Jesus. They'll spend more time on the TV, they'll spend more time in books about the Bible than they will in the Bible. Is that not true? So, uh, Proverbs 8. Go back to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17. <clears throat> Proverbs eight seventeen. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Wow. Now, early there can apply to early in the morning. But it means you seek him first before you start complaining, before you start giving out, before you start quitting, before you start calling mom. It means you call him first. You seek him first. He's inviting us. I, I won't take you there, but Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So throughout scripture, God and Jesus invites us, draws us, calls us to spend time just with him. Give you uh, four or five examples. The first one, there are loads of examples of when God made sure that somebody he wanted to use greatly was left alone, was put in a solitary place, was was abandoned by everyone else, and, and it was then that he changed them. The first one is a guy named Jacob. Go to Genesis 32. Genesis Chapter 32, in verse 22. <clears throat> Jacob is facing the worst nightmare of his life. His brother is coming with 400 armed servants to exact revenge on him for stealing the birthright and for uh, just uh, a lot of past history in verse 22, he rose up that night and he took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and he passed over the ford, the little brook called Jabbok, and he took them and he sent them over the brook and sent over 
that, all that he had. And so he put everything over there. And then Jacob was left what? And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. So God couldn't deal with him when his wife was around, when his wives. Can you imagine me saying that? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have one wife badgering you, complaining, always finding fault and saying, this is, this is too hot. You never, you never pay enough attention to me. It'd be awful to have four of them going at you all the time. Amen. And there's Jacob. He's got 11 kids. He has four wives. He has trouble up to the wazoo. How is God going to deal with him? He's not. So in the midst of, of, of the worst time of his life, Jacob finally gets alone, and guess who shows up? The Lord. There they wrestle, and it changes him. It actually fixes him. Only when he was alone. Go look at another guy. Moses. Go to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 24. Verse 12. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up unto me unto the mount. This was Mount Sinai. And be there. I like those words. What does it say? Say those last three words there. And be there. Now that's, that's it. He's saying, come up here and stay. Be there. Don't worry about what's going on down at the bottom of the, of the mount. Just come up there and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. So he, there's a purpose for him to be there, but it's big. He goes up there and he gets those Ten Commandments. Now go to chapter 20, uh, chapter 32. He actually not only gets the commandments, he's instructed on how to build a tabernacle. He's instructed on all kinds of things about the, the structure of government in, in, in the nation of Israel. Chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses... What's the next word? Come on with me. Gen, uh, Exodus 32, 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount. It's been 40 days and he's not back yet. Wouldn't it be nice if you were late because of prayer? I wonder if that's ever happened. <laughs> well, you don't know what I, the, the kids, the car, the, the, had to, I had to, I had to pay the bills. We have all the reasons why we're late. But that's a good reason, would you agree? He's spending time with the Lord and he doesn't want to come down. He's delaying coming down. Go to, uh, go to another one. Go to chapter 34. When he does come down, guess what has changed? Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not, knew not, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. What God could not do when Moses was busy trying to judge and teach and trying to to lead, he did when Moses was alone. Are you with me? It changed him. It affected him so that when he got around people, he went, you're different, Moses. So, something wonderful happened to you. Uh, I just talked about Job. This is probably the hardest one to talk about because Job lost his children. 
He lost his business. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. Then his wife walks away from him. What is that? What, what could you say is good about all the disaster that happened with Job? I don't know. I can't spiritualize this. Oh, listen, it was God's plan. It was what God wanted. But let me tell you, how do you think Job felt? There was no joy. There was no, oh, I know this is all going to turn out for my good. He didn't have Romans 8.28 yet. He had no idea what's going on. So he sits on that ash heap. His wife walks away from him. And three miserable friends show up, make his life miserable. Another guy named Elihu, a little more sense in his mind, tries to make sense of all this thing. But in the end, guess who finally shows up? God. And then, to the exclusion of everyone else, God and Job talk. And Job's heart was lifted. And his faith was restored and his trust was emblazoned with with power because he was just him and God settling. It's okay. Amen? Now that's hard because I would hope that none of you ever get to the place where your kids, your wife, your boss, everybody abandons you, drops you. You find yourself in the middle of nowhere. Wouldn't want that on my enemy. But let me tell you, when it happens, God's there. And you like to do something marvelous like he did with Job. So Job is a great example of being alone. And, and he would have rather have been left alone. His, bro, his friends come and what does he call them? Miserable comforters you all are. But then there's Jesus. Go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. And in the morning, Mark 1, 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day. Somebody give me a guess at what time that might be. Five? You think that's a great while? What time was day beginning normally in the Middle East? You're down towards the equator. 6 a.m. So a great while would probably not just be an hour before dawn. I'm guessing at least two hours before dawn, if not three. Are you listening? Rising a great while before dawn. Where am I looking? Verse 35, I lost my place. But before day, he went out and departed unto a, what kind of a place? What does solitary mean? With nothing. No cell phone. No, um, uh, no telephone, no news in the background, no people, nothing. He was solitary. He was the only one there, the sole one there, we would say, into a solitary place. And what does this say happened? And there prayed. He made the effort to get alone. Look at chapter 6, verse 47. Chapter 6 and verse 47. Now that was in the morning. Oh, well, Jesus prayed in the morning. Uh, no, not only. Chapter 6, verse 47, when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, guess where Jesus was? He was alone on the land, and he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's when he shows up. <laughs> the fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so Jesus watches, I, can, I, I have to be humorous, if you'll just follow me, get it in your mind. Jesus 
has sent his disciples into a ship, and up comes the storm. He knows what's coming. He says, bye, 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 everybody. Yeah, yeah, keep going, keep going. And then he went to prayer, and he prayed until when? Until 3 a.m. They're in the middle of a storm for at least six hours. Where are you, God? What happened? He put us in the middle of this storm. Is he, is, is he nuts? No. He put them out there and abandoned them. Why? It was more important to be praying than to be with them. And he left them there showing, you know what, even if I do let you stew for a while and abandon you, it seems like, for a little while, it'll be okay. I'll show up. I'll show up. But he made time, even when there was disaster going on, he made time to spend time between him and God. Would you say that it's probably more important for you to panic or to pray? Ladies? Are you with me? Okay. Luke chapter... Well, I, I've given my point. Over and over and over and over. Let me go on to Elijah. First Kings chapter 19. First Kings. First Kings 19.14. And if you've got that, quickly find Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I, I, I want to teach you, some of you may not be sure of your King James Bible being the Word of God. Let me help you tonight. Because the Bible has some special little ways to let you know, wow. Let me show you what I'm talking about. First Kings chapter 19, 14. Now this is Elijah. He's alone. He's actually defeated. He feels abandoned. Jezebel's after him. He has no friend in the world. He's sitting there. And look at what he says in verse 13. And it was so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entering into the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he responds, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. Notice that. It pauses there. It says, I'm only, I'm the only one that's left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, he's probably pretty well right. Nobody else that has stood up to Jezebel and to Ahab and to all of the prophets of Baal, he's probably right that as far as as far as earthly matters, as far as, 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 as just looking around, you could say, yeah, he's pretty well left alone, isn't he? But go to Romans chapter 12. I'm kind of ahead myself. I want to show you something. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11, verse 3. This is Paul quoting from there, and he adds a word. Just to give you the emphasis that, wow. Okay, this is how he feels. Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and not only am I left, but I'm left alone and they seek my life. So Paul puts it in there and makes sure you get the idea that as far as Elijah feels, I seem, this is how Paul, this is how Elijah would talk. I seem to always be left alone. Now Elijah was a loner. He did most of the ministry alone, didn't he? He didn't like it. He says, and I was left alone. He's quite frustrated. But the point is this. Didn't he have the power of God? Didn't Elijah have a great ministry? Didn't Elijah see great things? He got 
northern Israel, one of the most pagan, ungodly times of Israel, he got Israel to turn back to God, at least for a little while. He had power in his prayer life. But where did that come from? Because he was alone. And he spent more time, instead of just with people, with God. Now, here's the message. Go to Galatians chapter 1. And we're only going to get started here. But I'm wanting to give you some thoughts from Paul, because I bet you didn't realize, I bet you didn't know that the Apostle Paul was forced to be alone when he first got saved. Galatians chapter 1, if you'll go there, I have to actually also ask you to go to Acts chapter 9, because I want to show you how God got him alone. All right, first of all, Galatians chapter 1, we're going to read, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 9. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. Speaking of his conversion, he says, For have you heard of my my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and I wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's room and called me by His grace, when it pleased God to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now, Saul's conversion, how did he get saved? Do you remember? Acts chapter 9. It was just him and Jesus. Do you know, the Bible is really clear. It says there were people all around him. He went with an entourage. He was the leader of this, this, this small army. And there he was, headed up to Damascus, and woo! Up pops a light that is brighter than the sun, and a voice is heard. Everybody heard the voice. No one heard the words. There was only one person who heard the words. Who was it? So it was Jesus. So it was just Jesus and Saul. Now, in Acts chapter 9, uh, uh, according, to, uh, according to Paul, he looks back and he says, That's God revealing Jesus to me. It was breathtaking. It was the most wonderful event of my life. What does, after he gets saved, what does Saul of Tarsus, this new convert, this newly saved, used to be religious zealot for the devil and for religion, now a zealot for Christ, what's he like? Look at Acts chapter 9. Verse 19. When he'd received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. What do you think he's like when he gets saved? What do you think he's like when the first time he comes in and sits down next to a bunch of Christians? I mean, he's like, it's me. I love you. Oh, let me hug you again. Oh, Christians are the best people. He is transformed. He loves being around Christians. He can't wait for preaching. He can't wait to, to hear the Bible preached. He can't wait to sing. He loves being around Christians. He's hanging around with the disciples. Uh, verse 20, he even gets the chance to preach. Verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ back in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. But oh, now how do you think the Christians feel about him? They're terrified. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called him his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? Maybe he's here as a spy. Maybe he's going to take us all. We've been, we've been exposed. He's Come into our very midst. Verse 22. 
But Saul increased them more in strength and confounded the Jews with Joel at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Now that sounds so good. Things starting to stabilize. Verse 23, And after that manner, after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And then the disciples, what did they have to do? They took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. What does Paul have to do? He has to flee. What's God doing? Now, what does Paul want to do? He wants to sit in. He wants to stick in. He wants to be a part of what he used to hate, what he used to, to want to destroy. Now he wants to build. Now he wants to get going. He's preaching. He's soul winning. He is everything you'd want a new Christian to be. Amen? But then he's being let out the side of a, of a city down a, down a, 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 a window off the side of a wall and running for his life. Let's go on a little further. He goes down to Jerusalem. Um, verse 26, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed, he attempted to join himself to the disciples there. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was the disciple. Now, thankfully, thankful for Barnabas. Aren't you glad there's Barnabases in the world who look beyond the danger and just, just takes a risk on us? And Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples, declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and how he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he, he, Saul, was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him home. Tarsus was where Paul grew up. And you know what the Christians did? They said, Paul, it's too dangerous for you here. Paul, why don't you go home? Would you agree that that's probably the saddest thing? Can you imagine if somebody came in, if you came in to church and somebody put their arm around you and said, why don't you just go home? <laughs> Would that just dagger you? Would that be like, they don't love me? Let me tell you, it wasn't just them at work. Really, it wasn't really the devil at work. You know who was at work? God. Go to Galatians now. Back to Galatians chapter 1. I should have told you to stay there. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 17, <clears throat> and listen to him as he discusses about how he ends up. Chapter, seven, chapter 1, verse 7, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles. I didn't go up there to sit at the feet of the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, where Mount Sinai is, and then I returned again to Damascus. How long was it? Verse 18, then after three years. I want to talk about that. After three years. See, Saul, after his salvation, would you agree he tried to get stuck into two different churches, one up in Damascus and one down in Jerusalem? Do you think he really wanted to be a part? God said, not yet. Not yet. I know you want to do the ministry. I know you want to do these things, but not yet. And he had to take Saul of Tarsus out to Arabia. You know what's in Arabia? Sand. <laughs> That's it. Now, why? Here's a grown man, well-educated, very politically connected and powerful. He could have any money he wanted. He could do anything he wanted if he played his cards right. Yet, now, he is abandoned, he's rejected, he's feared, he, uh, and he's quite alone. But as you well know, he writes a verse later on in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. 
The Lord will not leave you nor forsake you. He was not alone. Even though uh, personally and physically he was alone, he learned that he wasn't alone. Saul was far away from everybody and everything that we call civilization, and it was there that Jesus did the best work in Saul that he couldn't do later. He had to do it then. What did he do? He started completely over with Saul. What was Saul? He was a Pharisee. He was a a preacher of the law. He expected people to toe the line, to do exactly like the law said, or else you're not in. He expected, he knew that the Gentiles were lost, they were worthless, they were out of God's plan, they weren't even included. He had everything backward wrong and was himself wrong. So God said, we need to start over. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you want to get to heaven? You're going to have to get born all over again. Very humbling, isn't it? And here, Jesus was able to start completely over with Saul. Only there. Kind of like taking, here's, uh, here's Dean. Twelve years of school. And if you count kindergarten, it's thirteen years, isn't it? You've done fourteen. What was third grade, the best three years of your life? How'd you do fourteen? Don't answer, don't answer. Anyway, fourteen years of school. And then somebody come along and says, we're going back to kindergarten. You see, you can't just get people to do that. Especially with other people who are watching you and saying, what are you going to do with your life? And you're saying, I'm going back to kindergarten. (laughs) And yet, God had to take Saul back to kindergarten. He had to start completely over with him. And that's a good thing. How many of you ever wished the Lord could do that with you? Lord, I wish you could start over with me. He will. Every day. Let me talk about that in a minute. Secondly, he humbled him. You know, when you're, when you're abandoned, when you're alone, when nobody writes you, when nobody calls you, when nobody says anything nice to you, when everybody stays away from you, you know what it does? It humbles you. Solitary time can harden some people, but usually it softens a submitted heart. It took how long for Saul to be broken, to be humbled? Three years. It changed his view of himself. What did Saul think of himself? According to Philippians chapter 3, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees, of the stock of of Israel, um, uh, blameless. You know what he says after he spent this time with Jesus? 1 Timothy 1.15, I'm the chief of sinners. Changed his view of himself, didn't it? Humbled him. No longer does Paul pry, hold his pride and carry himself as if he's some, some fancy dude. You know what he is? He's a sinner saved by grace. Solitary time can humble you. And I'm not talking about where you're like a monk. I'm talking about where God just seems to pull everybody away from you. You look around and you go, nobody seems to appreciate me. He wants some time with you. Humbled him. Uh, taught him how to have faith in one person. This time alone, Jesus. This time alone is when Jesus taught Saul how to rely on Jesus instead of on his Jewish religion and on his prayer life and on all of his phylacteries and his his blamelessness and his preciseness. He, you know, I talked to I've talked to thirteen Irish Roman Catholic priests here in Ireland, and a good few of them 
after looking at the Bible and look at the Gospel, they all pulled back. They all did. But most of them pulled back when they saw, if I had to believe that, I'd lose everything. I'd lose my retirement. I'd lose all of my friends. I would lose everything. And they weren't willing to lose anything. You see, when Saul lost everything, Jesus said, now you have to trust me. There was no grocery store to go to in the desert. There was no way for Saul. Saul had no miracle power. He could not call for bread to come forth from the stones. All Saul had was Jesus. And that's the greatest thing that Saul learned. You learn about Mueller. You learn about how he all he had was his prayer for God to supply the needs for those children. Amen? And there's something wonderful about when God abandons you and you say, all right, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to trust you and lean on you and to expect everything good to come from you. Saul learned that. You know, Saul didn't die in the wilderness, did he? Saul didn't starve in the wilderness. Saul came out of the wilderness. I remember somebody going into the wilderness and 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't eat, he didn't sleep, he was worn out, tired, hungry, and when he came out of the wilderness, he was full of the Holy Ghost. Who am I talking about? Jesus Christ. Taught in faith. And let me just say this. When Peter talked to Jesus, how did he talk to him? Like he was really there. When John spent time with Jesus and rested on his breast, what was it like? It was real intangible. You know what Jesus gave Saul? The very same thing. He says, Saul, if you're going to pray... I want you to talk to me. I want you to talk like I'm right there. I can't be with you always. He even said this to his disciples. He's, he looks and he says, guys, I've got to go away. But I will give you another what? And he'll teach you. He'll guide you. He'll comfort you. And I want you to talk to me just like you did when I was there with you. And it was during that time that Saul of Tarsus learned how to pray. Hmm. He relearned the entire Old Testament. And that's an amazing, that's a massive job to start in Genesis all the way to Malachi and to relearn it all. Guess what's in every page and every chapter of the Old Testament? Jesus. And Saul, throughout all of his learning, never knew that that brass serpent on that pole was a type, a picture, a shadow of Jesus Christ. He never knew that that tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, an entrance by the Lamb, was all a picture of the, and the, and the veil was all a picture of the process by which man comes to God through the flesh of Jesus Christ, through the torn, beaten, ripped, slaughtered flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. He never knew that. He never knew that, that Eve looked forward and saw a Savior who would, who would, uh, bruise the head of, of the serpent. Amen. He relearned the entire Old Testament. As a matter of fact, do you know, if you read, the person who wrote the most of the, of the New Testament was one person. Who was it? Paul. And throughout the books of the New Testament, guess what he quotes? The Old. Because he learned it all new. Another thing that's amazing that he learned while he was away during those three years, he learned the New Testament before it was ever written. That's a great thing. He's able to see things and able to learn things so that he's writing stuff that, guess who taught him? Jesus taught him. Galatians, I want you to understand this. Look in verse, uh, uh, verse, um, 
I want to say, verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with anybody, with flesh and blood. Nobody taught me. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. And I returned again unto Damascus. And after those three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. And I only abode with him how many days? So there's no way for in 15 days for Paul to have learned everything that needed to be known about Jesus. He got it out there in the wilderness. He got it while he was alone. Not that he just sat there like a, like a Tibetan monk. But in the presence of Jesus with his Bible. He learned before it was ever written. It's phenomenal. You know, there are things that you'll learn that nobody else can teach you. What did Jesus say to Peter? He's, when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, nobody taught you that, did they? My father did. And he made a team worker out of him. You know what Paul was? Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Terminator. Before he got saved, Saul was, was a leader. Saul was the, was the, uh, the, the, the lone ranger who led, who led servants, but he himself was his own man. You know when he came out of that desert? You know when he became? A servant of servants. Somebody who worked with other people. He became part of a team. Now I think this is really great. Because he's no, uh, he's no longer blazing a trail as a lone ranger zealot against all the Christians. He's working with people now. And he's working with loads of different kinds of people. He's learning how to have grace with people. You know what a Jew, the hardest thing for a Jew is to have grace with a Gentile. And yet that's all God gave him. <laughs> Jews wouldn't have him, so he had to get along with Gentiles. It took a long time, but if you know anything about Paul, he'd have problems with people. He had a problem with a guy named John Mark. You remember him? Do you know, ultimately, God finally won. And he says, I need, I need John Mark. He's profitable me for the ministry. That was the work that began when he was alone. God said, when you come out of here, I want you to get along with everybody. Lastly, all of this was during a time that Jesus called secret prayer. Go to Matthew chapter 6 and we'll wrap this up. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, when thou hast shut the door. Why would you shut the door? Don't you want everybody to know you're praying? Huh? Don't you want to put a little sign out there? Do not disturb man of God speaking to God. Is that what you want? Turn the light on, on air. Remember like they had the old uh, radio stations? Shut the door. Don't let anybody know you're in there. Now, I don't know how you fit in the closets back then. It's impossible to fit in them here now. Amen? <laughs> But when thou, when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is where? And nobody knows. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. You know, God answers our prayers openly only when we have made our time to pray in secret. Alone with Him. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray with your family. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray together as a church. I mean, the church... In, in, uh, just outside of Jerusalem where, where, um, uh, the mother of John was, um, uh, when Peter came and it was released, that whole church was praying, amen? But that, that was not the norm. What was the norm was those people had already spent time 
alone with God in prayer. And when they came together, it was like bringing coals of fire together and it just went further. But they had that quiet, secret time of prayer first. Have your own time as often as possible. With you hiding, I don't care if it's in a closet or under the, or under the, I was going to say under the pillow, but don't do that. You'll be asleep in ten minutes. But under the bed, uh, uh, out in the car, out on a, uh, uh, out on a walk, find a place, just you and God, and nobody knows you're there. And make it secret. You know, you'll find yourself under the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwelleth in the secret place. Wow. Here we go. You are what you are when you're alone. It's just, it's just a fact. I haven't even gotten halfway through these thoughts. We'll get to it in two weeks. But let me just review. This message is not an attempt for you just to be alone. There's half of you who'd say, I wish I could be alone. I wish the kids were gone. I wish my husband was gone. I wish everything was gone. Amen. This is not a message to get you to just be alone, but rather to get you to be alone with God. I've given you a couple of examples of people who were alone just with him. Somebody name some of them. Somebody name one of them. I can't hear you all at once. Raise your hand. Job. Isn't that funny how that shows up first? Who else? Elijah. Oh, you said Elijah. Who else? Sarah. Moses. Jacob. And Jesus. Saul of Tarsus right after he was saved. I mean, it wasn't a few weeks. And God says, you need to get away. Come away with me. Ends up for three years. Why? Why did God do all that? It was there that Jesus did the best work in Saul of Tarsus. And it'll be there in that time that you have with God, and it ought to be every day, that He'll do the following for you. Number one, He'll start over with you. Aren't you glad? Lamentations 3 says, His mercies are new every morning. He starts over with you, even till dawn. Amazing. He'll start over with you every day. You say, I blew it, Lord. I'm back at zero. Well, let's get going again. Well, I'm back at zero again. Let's get going again. He starts over with us when we have that time of secret prayer. Secondly, He'll humble you. One of the greatest effects of your prayer life is you come out less than when you went in. we got some work to do there. He'll teach you real trusting faith in Jesus Christ because there's no one else to call but Him. That time alone, all you'll learn is I have no one else in heaven but thee. He'll also teach you how to talk with Jesus just like people did when Jesus walked on this earth. If you spend enough time alone, you'll talk to God. And you'll talk to Him desperately like He's really there. If you go in for five minutes and come out for five minutes, it's almost worthless. He'll teach you the fathomless truths of the Old Testament only in the secret time of prayer. Only when nobody else is with because I'm going to show you that as you go to prayer, you need some things to rest upon. And there's a whole lot of Old Testament you can rest upon. And all of a sudden, it'll come alive like you've never known until you spent that time alone. He'll also teach you how to live the entire New Testament. He'll teach you how to live as a baby in Christ and as a conquering soldier of Christ. Amen. You'll also become a team worker. You won't mind being part of a church. 
you'll humble yourself and you'll work with Miss Blabbermouth. You'll humble yourself and work with uh, Mr. Uh, rub the salt in your eyes. You'll work with anybody because you had that time of secret prayer. Not because you're a great guy, but because God said, work with them. Amen. And the more you do this, you'll develop the life habit of secret prayer. I, I, I don't need, I don't need to know, I don't need to know that every one of you at certain times pray here and do, no, no, no. I need to see the effect. I need to know you are doing it by your fruits. How to be able to tell it. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Make this week a week of secret prayer. Your husband doesn't know. Your husband ought to come in and says, did you pray this week? Can you tell? Father, you put these lessons, you put these examples, and they're kind of hidden. We overlook the emphasis on the on the solitary, on the aloneness of these people in the Bible. And it's kind of, it's, it's only for those of us who, who stop and say, is there more to the Christian life than just the busyness and just the preaching and the giving and the soul winning? And we discover, wow, you invite us to come away with you. You want us to spend time with you, to cast not just some, but all our care upon you. And in that secret time of prayer, where there's no one to impress, where there's no one that can know or see, you'll meet us there. And you will make more of us in that time than all the rest of our days, all the rest of our education, all the rest of our lives. May we make that time. May we cherish and hold to a sweet hour of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.